thank you so much. If Andy and Trey would, uh, or Mike might take some of these sheets. If you came in and did not have a chance to pick up a sh one of the study sheets, we raise your hand and we'll be certain to see that you receive one. And if you're attending the Bible study for the first time, we certainly welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I discovered in a conversation following last Wednesday's Bible study where a pointed question was asked to me about the wilderness motif that I came to understand also by a phone call or two that I received during the week that my point had not come through in uh, the fact that I had hastily uh, driven it uh, before you, and I wanted to develop that for you, and that's where we begin this evening. You'll remember that in the prologue to Mark's Gospel, the subunits are held together by the wilderness theme. That theme is introduced to us already in the Old Testament citation. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, where actually Isaiah 40 verse 3, Exodus 20 verse 23, and then Malachi 3.1 are brought together in an enriched quotation of voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord make straight paths for him. So that first unit is tied together by the note of the messenger that is sent ahead of the one who is identified as the Lord. The place where this takes place is the wilderness. It's not strange then that in verses 4 through 8, John is identified as a man of the wilderness. He wears the dress of a person who lives in the wilderness. Camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his diet is that of the desert nomad. Large locusts, wild honey. And we read that John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all of the holy province, that is Judea, all of the holy city, Jerusalem, go out to John in the wilderness. As opposed to the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, in verses 9 through 11, we're introduced to one who comes from Galilee. He clearly comes to John in the wilderness because we read at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And we've already had the Jordan River identified as part of that wilderness in verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. The Jordan is a part of the wilderness. And then in verses 12 and 13, at once the Spirit sent him even deeper into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, 
being tested by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, there are two German scholars for whom I have a great deal of respect, Joachim Jeremias and Ethelbert Stauffer, and it's not important that you remember their names. But what is important is that they turn to this passage, particularly verses 12 and 13, and they found in it what they called a paradise motif. Jesus is the new Adam. And he finds himself in the midst of the wild animals, even as Adam did in paradise. But if you know the pages of your Old Testament, you know that the wild animals are part of the horror, the danger, the desolateness that characterizes the wilderness. So take a look at your sheet. Certainly, the central redemptive event in the Old Testament is the event of the Exodus from Egypt. God reveals himself as God the Lord who led you out of Egypt out of the house of bondage. And the reference to the Exodus event occurs again and again, not only in the historical books of the Pentateuch, but certainly in the prophets, in the Psalter as well. So the central redemptive event of the Old Testament was the Exodus, just as the central redemptive event in the New Testament is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now in the Old Testament, the wilderness is clearly a place. It is a place where the people of God are tested. But what we need to appreciate, it is more than a place. It is also a time in the experience of the people of God. It's that time when redemption is in the past and the promised future rest is yet in the future. It is therefore an indication of the present. Now it's very interesting to belong to the old covenant people of God, to belong to the synagogue community. Because as the synagogue community turns to their Bible, they call the books of the Bible by the first Hebrew word that occurs within the text. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. It works very well in Genesis, Bereshit, in the beginning. And Genesis is a great book about beginnings. But it doesn't work in Exodus at all, because the first Hebrew word is Shemot, which means the names. These are the names of those who went down with Jacob into Egypt. And yet, if you were in the synagogue, the rabbi might well say, turn to Shemot. And you would know he's talking about Exodus. Now, where it works brilliantly is in a book you and I call 
Numbers. Numbers. I think of Charlie Brown who said, how can you do the new math with an old math mind? We don't want to deal with numbers. And we don't read the book of Numbers. Now, if we did, we find in chapter 1 there is a census taken when the people come to Kadesh Barnea. And then follows an account of some 40 years of wandering until the people come back to Kadesh Barnea. And so you have another census taken in chapter 33. And that's where the numbers are found. But here the synagogue is wiser than the church. For it calls this book Bamidvar, which means in the wilderness. In the wilderness. And that's where you and I live. A great redemptive act. Golgotha in the past. The promise of rest yet before us. And do you know what the key phrase in the book of Numbers is? And the people grumbled. And we can relate to that. So Numbers is all about life in the wilderness. Now if we move from the Pentateuch into the prophets, what you find is in the prophet Hosea, in the prophet Isaiah, and in the prophet Jeremiah, there is the development of what biblical scholars call the new Exodus theme. What is it all about? God sits in judgment upon a rebellious people. A people who do not know that God has exerted an exclusive claim upon them. And he says, I'm going to call you back into the wilderness. And there I'm going to enter into judgment with you. But sonship, daughtership, is going to be renewed in the wilderness. And then I will lead you into the promised rest. And I've had great fun this week reading through Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah to get these passages for you, and you can read them for yourself. But God speaks of alluring Israel back into the wilderness. Now John knows about this new Exodus theme. And as John reads the prophets, particularly the prophet Isaiah, he finds there his own vocation set out for him. He is the one who goes before the Lord. He is the messenger who appears in the wilderness and calls Israel to come out into the wilderness. Jesus knows this theme. He reads the great prophecy of Isaiah and there finds his vocation. Servant of the Lord. Regarded by us as nothing. As wretched. Perhaps not even human. That was the judgment we made, not knowing that it's by his stripes we are healed. That the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus finds his own vocation set out for him in the prophetic scriptures. Mark knows this theme. 
And it's from that perspective that he develops the story of Jesus for you. But now go back to that unit where John appears in the wilderness. All of the Judean countryside respond to John. And so do those in Jerusalem. And no wonder. If Mike and I were having a discussion back at that time about who is the greatest person of our generation, there would be no disagreement between us. We would all agree it was John. Why? Because after some 350 years of prophetic silence, God had suddenly brought a prophet in the midst of Israel once again. No wonder the people go out to John in the wilderness. They're eager to have the famine of the word of God, of which Amos spoke in chapter 8, broken. But what Mark makes clear is although the whole Judean countryside responded to John, although all of Jerusalem responded to John, they did not know what it meant to go out to John a man of the wilderness. They didn't know the Exodus theme. And so they go down into the waters, and they come up out of the waters, and nothing happens. There is no declaration. Now, sonship has been renewed in the wilderness. Mark suddenly turns his attention upon a Galilean. Galilee, which was known as Galilee of the Gentiles, because the great cities of that province were all pagan cities. One comes from Galilee, the only Galilean that Mark pays any attention to in the prologue. And he knows what it is to go out to John. He knows what it is to identify himself with people in radical need of repentance. And he goes down into the waters, and he comes up out of the waters, and suddenly the heavens are torn apart, and the Spirit descends upon him as a dove, and a voice declares, now sonship has been renewed in the wilderness. And how do you men, how do I, become a son of the sovereign God? by virtue of my relationship to Jesus, the beloved Son. How do you women become daughters of the sovereign God by virtue of the fact that sonship, daughtership, has now been renewed? Why? Because Jesus knows what it means to go out to the wilderness. It means all of the judgment that should have fallen upon us is going to fall upon him. And Mark's perspective is he will be the bearer of the judgment that should have been ours. And that's what Golgotha is all about. Do you see how significant this perception, this perception is? Do you understand the distinctiveness of this understanding? It is found not in Matthew, not in Luke, not in John. It is unique to the perspective of the evangelist 
mark. That's what I wanted you to catch. And I invite you to enter into the text on your own throughout the course of the week to make certain that you become familiar with this new Exodus theme. Now this is part one of a consideration of the next major unit in Mark that extends from 1.14 to 3.6. It begins with a summary statement in 1.14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now that's a summary passage. It describes the preaching of Jesus throughout the first phase of his public ministry in Galilee. It isn't that he simply came and proclaimed this message once. This is the message he proclaimed again and again and again. Because this is the message God had sent him into the world to deliver. We're going to take that message apart and look at it very carefully. But that's where we begin with a summary of the early Galilean ministry and the preaching of the Lord Jesus. What follows in 116 to 45 is essentially watching Jesus over a period of some 24 hours, a single day. It begins on the day that will end with sunset and the dawning of the Sabbath. So we might say it begins on Friday, sometime during the day when Jesus makes his appearance on the shore and calls the fishermen. But we read in verse 21, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, that is, when the sun had set, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. So following the ministry in which the fishermen were called, we have Friday evening, where the service of prayer, where the scripture was read both in the Torah, what we call the Pentateuch, and in the Haftorah, or the prophetic writings, which could be made up of what you and I call the prophets, but also the Psalter. And that's what verses 21 to 28 is all about. Verses 29 and 30 concern what happened immediately after the synagogue service. And we read in verse 32, that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. It is the very evening of Friday, having begun with the Sabbath service in the synagogue and now continuing. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was yet dark. You see, Friday is now slipping into Saturday. And then we read in verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The account of the leper and his cleansing 
And then we read in verse 45, after Jesus had sternly cautioned the leper about speaking of all that had transpired in his body, that man went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news, and as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in in a wilderness place. And yet the people still came to him from everywhere. You see, Jesus knew if word of what he had done with the leper began to spread, his ministry of proclamation would be disrupted. And it was. Then 2, 1 to 3, 5 has five instances in which Jesus is caught up with conflict. Conflict with various authorities. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, two weeks from now. And then 3, 6 brings the unit to a conclusion. A significant negative response to the early Galilean ministry. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And we have an anticipation of Golgotha, the cross. So that's what we have essentially ahead of us. Now if you'll turn over, we'll begin to do some of the detailed work that will be helpful to us as we continue to read and listen to Mark. Let's begin with that summary passage. 1, 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The imprisonment of John was the signal for God to lay upon the heart of Jesus to act. And the action took the form of Jesus entering Galilee and preaching the good news of God. That's what you are meant to understand from verse 14, that Jesus' proclamation was a direct response to the manner in which the great prophet John was treated as he was arrested, we will learn in chapter 6, 14 to 29, arrested by Herod Antipas, imprisoned in Marcarios, a great fortress of Herod in Perea in the Judean wilderness, and Jesus responds preaching the good news of God. Now that phrase, the good news of God, is an important one because it reminds us that God in his grace, no matter how dense we are, no matter whether we understand what it means to go out to John in the wilderness or not, always takes the initiative to draw near to us. His heart is for us. He loves us. Even when in the days of Hosea, the people were giving themselves to open idolatry, God says, Oh, Israel, Ephraim, how can I give you up? 
he is unwilling that we should miss the message of his grace. But what did Jesus proclaim? He proclaimed the time has come. Now, our English language is impoverished, for we have only one word for time. Behind it stands the Greek concept of chronos, which simply means passing time. We speak of a chronometer. We speak of chronology. That's the word that's come in our English language. But what didn't come into our language is the Greek word kairos, which means a moment pregnant with significance. Perhaps Scotty has said on some occasion, this was a kairotic moment, and you wondered what he was talking about. The word kairos stands behind it. It is the significant moment because God is acting in a significant... And we are impoverished because that word, that concept, never really came into our language. Kronos, that's mere history. Kairos, that's significant history. Jesus proclaims the kairotic moment, the kairos has come. He proclaims why the kingdom of God is near. God, in other words, has determined this is the decisive moment in which he's going to act on behalf of every one of us. Draw near in what sense? Certainly temporally. Take a look at a little parable that's enshrined in chapter 13 of Mark and verse 28. It is the parable of the fig tree in the spring. Jesus said, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender, that is, the sap is moving through the branch, and its leaves come out, you know that the summer is near. It is the same expression as the kingdom of God is near. In other words, the next thing on the calendar that's significant is summer. Spring followed by summer. When Jesus says the kingdom is near, he means the next thing on God's redemptive calendar is the imposing of his sovereign reign upon his people. It is the reign of God. God is ready to act in a new and a decisive way. The kingdom is near but it is also near spatially. You ask what submission to the reign of God looks like. Follow Jesus in the pages of the Gospel of Mark and you'll learn what it is to submit to the sovereign authority of God. It is near in the person of Jesus. He's the one who's in the midst of the people. It has drawn near temporally, it has drawn near spatially, and Jesus is the decisive person in the fact that the kingdom has drawn near. The last part of his message was, repent 
and believe the good news. The call to repentance was simply what John was preaching. The people came in response to the prophetic word of John. They said, we want to repent. Repentance speaks of confrontation with the God of judgment who brings us into the wilderness and enters into judgment with us. Had not the Lord Jesus interposed between us and God, every one of us would have perished. None of us could stand the judgment of God. But the word repent and believe the good news means that at the same time that God confronts us as the God of judgment, he confronts us as the God of grace. It is good news. There is still time to repent. The day will come when that time is withdrawn, when there is no opportunity for repentance. Now is the opportune time. Now is the moment filled with significance because the opportunity to repent and believe that God's heart is for you and for me is right before us. That was the message of Jesus. That's what those opening summary verses are all about. I've been vitally interested in stories of those who have confronted Jesus for the first time as adults. Of the many that I've come to know, I'll simply share one. It's the story of Paoli Pasolini a card-carrying member of the Italian Communist Party who is a filmmaker known for the eroticism of his films. Satyricon was a film that showed in theaters across the United States perhaps some 15 or 20 years ago, and it was one orgy after another. Pioli Pasolini found himself in the Rome Hilton and he was tossing back and forth, and he couldn't sleep. In absolute disgust, he put on the light that was on the little table next to him, and there, of all things, was the perennial Gideon Bible in Italian. It was the New Testament. Now, not being able to sleep, he picked it up for the first time, and he began to read the Gospel according to Matthew. Why, he read into the night until he had devoured the entire gospel, and he said, this is an absolutely fascinating account. And Jesus himself is absolutely a fascinating person. Someone ought to make a film about this. I'm a filmmaker. Why don't I make a film? And Pasolini did. He made the film which I regard as the finest cinematic presentation of the person of the Lord Jesus, the Gospel according to St. Matthew. It's not a film you're going to find at Williamson Square or the Royal Oaks Theater or at the Great Theater in Cool Springs at the mall. You're only going to see this film at an arts festival. But what makes it a great film? 
is that he made three cinematic decisions. Decision number one, he would film it in black and white, that all the starkness of the account might break through. Decision number two, I will not use professional actors, but simply people with interesting faces. And decision number three, why this is a story of a man and his disciples who lived in abject poverty. I'll film it in southern Italy, which is precisely such a place. The result was magnificent. Now remember what Pasolini said about Jesus. He said he's an absolutely fascinating person. That kind of a statement is made possible only because of distance between Jesus' actual appearance and us. The truth of the matter is that those who first came face to face with Jesus did not find him fascinating. They found him an occasion for alarm. He was a disturbing presence. Why? Because they had no categories with which they could place Jesus and pigeonhole him. He broke all of their categories. Here was something that was brand new. They were familiar with the old, and they liked the old. And here was someone who disturbed the old and made them very uncomfortable. Now, it's very interesting. You and I do not particularly find Jesus fascinating. We've dealt with Jesus. He has his place in our life. So now we can get on with life and deal with the real issues that impact our children, our families, our vocation, our ambitions. In fact, Jesus for us has become the old, the familiar, and the south is the place where this is particularly true. But Mark begins his gospel on the note of the disturbing presence of Jesus and that's what I want to capture this evening before you leave. Mark presents Jesus as a disturbing presence in Galilee. That's what that summary of his preaching is all about. He makes the announcement that God is about to act in a new and decisive way. The kingdom of God is near. You must have a kingdom vision. It is a very disturbing word because it means you have to recognize the only aspect of life that is different is the presence of Jesus in the midst of the people. In other words, Jesus is the decisive term. 
in coming face to face with the absolute claim of God upon your life. That's disturbing. It's disturbing because it means we can't simply put him on the mantle of our fireplace. We can't put him on the shelf. We can't say we've dealt with him and now we can get on with the serious things of life. You have to deal with Jesus. What follows that summary of preaching is the call of the fishermen. Jesus appears as a disturbing presence on the shore. Why disturbing? Well, what was remembered was the brevity of his call and the immediacy of the response. Come, follow me. And they left their nets and they followed Jesus. The promise to the fishermen was, I will make you fishers of men. I'm not at all certain that they understood what he was saying, but it's imperative that you understand what he was saying. Because in the pages of the Old Testament, the fisher of men and women is none other than God himself. God speaks of putting a hook in the mouth of Leviathan. God is the one who sends for fishers to gather men and women into the valley of decision. God will enter into judgment with them in that valley. One passage will have to suffice. Take a look at Jeremiah 16 and verses 16 through 18. But now I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. After that I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and from the crevices of the rocks. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. I will repay them double for their wickedness and their sin, because they have defiled my land with the lifeless forms of their vile images and have filled my inheritance with their detestable idols. It is a judgment theme that is introduced with the call to be fishers of men. I dare say that that was unperceived by the fishermen. But anyone who knew the pages of Jeremiah would have perceived that Jesus was saying, I'm going to train fishermen who are going to bring men and women face to face with the Lord God, and they're going to have to make a decision. I identify with you or I don't. It is a call to decisive confrontation with the awesome, sovereign Lord God, creator of the universe, redeemer of all of the people of God upon whom his love is outpoured. And disruption? Read the account from the perspective of Zebedee, the father 
of James and John. Notice verse 20 of chapter 1 of Mark. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Zebedee was a successful businessman. So successful, he had been able to hire others to work with him, but absolutely dependent upon the partnership of his sons. And as the account comes to a conclusion, he's standing in a boat with his mouth open. He can't believe his sons are walking away. Jesus was a disturbing presence on the shore. And Mark 1, 21 to 28, Jesus is a disturbing presence in the house of God. Mark focuses on the note of the authority of Jesus. Notice that in verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law, not as the biblical scholars of that day, whose authority depended upon a whole chain of tradition. And in their amazement, you ought to hear the note of alarm. Because here is one whose word was invested with authority. And in verse 27, the people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. Now what do we call the house of God? The sanctuary. The safe place. So the people come to the synagogue for the Friday evening service. They come to the sanctuary for the Wednesday evening Bible study. But the whole point of Mark is there is no safe place. You cannot hide from the one whose authority is absolutely alarming because he imposes upon you the exclusive claim of the Lord God. There was a demoniac in that synagogue, a man the center of whose personality had been taken over by demonic spirits. And before the sovereign, authoritative, commissioned word of Jesus, those demonic forces are absolutely expelled. And the people were amazed. That is to say, they were alarmed. Because here was one who absolutely validated the call of God upon his life, the commission to be the agent of a word invested with power. Mark understands this. Do we? Who is this one who makes the alarming announcement with authority that God is ready to act in a decisive way? The one who embodies that message. Who is the one who enlists men and women 
to be fishers of others, to bring them to the place where they are face to face with the Lord God in the valley of decision. It is the agent of God who says, I am acting in a decisively new and determined way. Who is this one whose word penetrates in such an alarming way in the place we had thought was safe, where we could hide? The one who knows that the determinative factor between belief and unbelief is your response to Jesus. So who am I? Simply a man under authority because I had an encounter with the disturbing presence of Jesus. That's what Mark wants for every one of us. Now to those of you who are Christians, I feel compelled to ask the question, how do you regard Jesus? I believe it's time for us to recognize him as a disturbing presence who demands our full attention. You have to deal with Jesus. And to you who are not yet Christians, I feel compelled to ask, are you open to an encounter with the disturbing presence of Jesus, knowing that he will enlist you for the exclusive service of our sovereign God. Remember the situation out of which Mark was birthed, the Gospel of Mark. Those men and women frightened, hiding in the catacombs, why? because the law of sanctuary was supposed to protect them as they went down into the safe place, only to find that bands of police were willing to violate that sanctuary. Mark wants them to know there is no safe place. But if you have come face to face with the disturbing presence of Jesus, if you know that God wants an absolute devotion to himself, and that Jesus is the crucial term in knowing what that means. Let the flames lick up. Let the bite of the lion fall upon the neck. It lasts for 30 seconds. But separation from our God would last for eternity. We need to come face to face with the disturbing presence of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the perception of your servant, Mark. We acknowledge how comfortable we have become with Jesus. How easy it is to speak about him without ever looking him in the face, without ever looking him in the eyes without sensing the totality 
of your claim upon us. You are acting in a new and decisive way, and we want to participate in that. To that end, O Lord, let the words of your servant Mark burn into our hearts. Let the insight of your servant Mark be an insight we treasure. We are prepared for the radical obedience to which you are calling us. And this I pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are to be.